Hello and welcome to this PSG Think Big series podcast. In this program, Alicia Sikkim speaks to Daniel Minnelli about the future credibility of the South African financial sector. Welcome to the Think Big series brought to you by PSG. The series is a collection of dialogues with leading speakers that brings its audiences independent insights that help them in turn formulate their own opinions on some of our country's most pressing issues. I'm Alicia Sekum and joining me today is Daniel Manelli, who's chair designate at Nedbank, a position he officially assumes in June after having stepped down as chairman at Alexander Forbes. Pre his chairmanship positions, he'd served as chief executive of ABSA Group, and prior to that was deputy governor at the South African Reserve Bank, where he served two five-year terms. Daniel's also served as the IMF G20 and BRICS Central Bank Deputy for South Africa, as well as the Chairman of the Deputies for the International Monetary Financial Committee of the IMF. So, who better to talk about the future credibility of South Africa's financial sector? Daniel, thanks so much for joining us today. And uh, considering the recent crisis involving Silicon Valley Bank and Credit Suisse, perhaps that's the place to start, because that could have set off a series of bank failures had governments not stepped in, right? Is the risk out the system or does the risk of widespread bank failure remain, potentially foreshadowing a trend on a global scale like we saw back in 2008? Thank you. Hi, um, Alicia, and thanks very much for the invitation and for your kind introduction. Um, I think the, the run on Silicon Valley Bank came quite out of the blue and as a shock to the markets. So it is therefore not surprising at all that we would have seen the nervousness and the volatility, and in some instances, almost near panic in terms of sell-off in the markets. Uh, but I guess your question is about whether that event and the subsequent event, um, and for instance, at Credit Suisse, which by the way, were not directly uh, related but resulted in sort of market psychology kicking in. So the question is whether through spillover effects and contagion, this could uh, precipitate a, a global financial crisis of the proportions that we experienced in 2008, if I understand you correctly. I don't think so. And I think recent development seems to confirm that. And the clearest signal for me in that being that central banks, for instance, who were on a, a particular a monetary policy path did not think that this was significant enough an event for them to diverge from those policy paths uh, they were on. And I do think that there are distinct differences between the global financial crisis context and that of today. We have much better equity and liquidity buffers in banks than before, and also partly exactly as a result of regulatory reforms that were introduced post the 2008 crisis with the, um, the so-called Basel III framework being the centerpiece of those reforms. And they introduced measures such as the liquidity coverage ratio and the net stable funding ratio, which interestingly were aimed at preventing exactly what we saw at, um, at Silicon uh, Valley Bank, namely liquidity and interest rate mismatches and a high level of concentration risks and including other issues such as um, the large unrealized uh, losses they were carrying on the security uh, portfolio. 
Unfortunately, one has to add that there were some regulatory failures uh, that contributed to this in that regulatory provisions were, were watered down uh, in the US, exempting banks like SVB from more stringent provisions. Uh, and that apparently on the basis of their size and, and, you know, in the context of the US financial system and even the banking system, the 16th largest bank in the system is not entirely small. And, and of course, based on its operating model, which was highly concentrated with regard to the, the startup industry and how they supported that from both a deposit taking basis and, and lending into that industry, SVB one could argue should have been looked at differently just given its operating model. So in summary, I would say at least on sort of these, these two cases because they came sort of uh, hot on the heels of each other. I don't think we have to worry about a 2008 style global financial crisis. SVB was a unique case and the problems that Credit Suisse had been building over time. But the good thing is that both institutions are now the subject of um, orderly resolutions that are being facilitated by the relevant regulatory authorities. What it does confirm is that global financial markets are fragile and prone to crisis as well. But you're saying that despite South Africa's current vulnerabilities, the South African financial sector would be able to withstand the impact uh, this time around if a global financial crisis did hit because of all the buffers that have been erected along the way, right? South Africa's financial sector is generally well regarded, Daniel, and perceived by many as operating at the highest global standards, but there are a few challenges it's coming up against within a low to no growth environment. Name a couple, the impact of South Africa's gray listing on the country's financial sector, a questioning of the Saab's mandate and uh, independence as well. Is the sector's credibility locally at risk at all in your books? I wouldn't think so at all. And, and you've touched on a couple of issues that I may just reflect on. And I think even on the onset of the, uh, the global financial crisis, you'd recall that South African banks were actually in a very good position uh, even then, well capitalized with sufficient liquidity. And it's also worth remembering uh, that when in other jurisdictions, it became necessary to bail out banks and embark on unconventional policies in terms of both uh, uh, monetary policy formulation and, and implementation and liquidity provisions, that at no point did that become necessary in South Africa. So the regulatory and supervisory framework had remained tight mm -hmm. and fairly intrusive, which stood as in good stead. And, um, and as a country, we actually resisted uh, what at the time was, was called light touch uh, regulation, which was adopted elsewhere, and which in some ways one could argue laid the basis for the calamity that then followed. Having said that, South Africa, though, did not uh, sit on its laurels and was uh, not complacent and fully participated in, in all the initiatives that followed the global financial crisis to make uh, the financial system safer. And as a result of which, for instance, we have migrated our regulatory architecture to the Twin Peaks system of regulation today. Uh, between the Prudential Authority and the Financial Sector uh, Conduct Authority, we implemented or started implementing the Basel III framework that I was just referring to earlier 
uh, 10 years ago now and ensuring that banks are appropriately capitalized to be able to better absorb losses and ensuring that uh, the banks built uh, a buffers in good times that would come in handy when, when things start going south, uh, introducing the liquidity standards that I, I was talking about. So I would say today, banks are in, in an even better uh, position than they were back in 2008. And apart from having implemented uh, those regulatory reform um, as part of the tough operating environment we're facing some of the challenges you alluded to, Alicia, um, things like preparing for the exclusion from the World Government Bond Index, uh, preparing for, for downgrades into the sub-investment category, managing the fallout from COVID, and as I say, more recently, grey listing. Uh, South African banks have remained vigilant to ensure that um, uh, they are well prepared for potential uh, pressures down the road, whatever their origin may be. Let's pick up on that grey listing aspect, because I chatted to Mike Brown, who you'll soon be sitting pretty close to just the other day, and he was saying that South Africa being grey listed is not an indictment on the banking sector. It's a result of a broader system that doesn't work, where even when unscrupulous behaviour is identified, no one's held accountable. So this inability to investigate, prosecute, and cooperate with global money laundering authorities is what's gotten us there. But that for most, South Africa already fell into their high-risk category, uh, you know, post-reports of state capture. So they didn't need to be told to put South Africa on an extended due diligence. The answer seems obvious, right? But how do we get ourselves out from under this cloud? Look, I would certainly align myself with those comments that the banking sector was not actually where the main issues were. And, and, and good progress had been made in addressing some of the findings uh, in that sector, but the remedial actions outside the financial sector, as they relate, for instance, to, to legislative and the criminal justice systems, were actually responsible uh, for us getting, uh, getting grey-listed. Um, but unfortunately, the one has to admit as well uh, that South Africa being grey-listed was somewhat self-inflicted. Mm. Um, we were warned with ample time. We were told exactly what we needed to fix. And, and we did not, in all instances, act with the relevant speed and urgency, although FATF did acknowledge um, and recognize that South Africa then did eventually move and, and pass the relative legislation, two key pieces of legislation. Um, but obviously, uh, we didn't at all times act with the necessary sort of speed and, and urgency. Uh, and uh, some of the issues, of course, have to do with the challenges that we had to deal with, including some of the uh, revelations from the, um, the Zondo Commission. Um, but in terms of where kind of we, we stand now, my, my big concern is that, yes, I agree that in terms of some of the implications, it is correct uh, to observe that um, given that this was telegraphed, over an extended period, um, grade listing, uh, to a large extent, as they say, is, is priced in. However, we need to be uh, careful because depending on how we are perceived to be working towards resolving the issues and implementing uh, the agreed fit of implementation uh, plan and how quickly, uh, you know, if the perception were to be that we're taking too long, are not prioritizing appropriately, that they may yet be 
another turn in sentiment to the worst, which could lead to sort of higher funding and implementation costs and, you know, yeah. reduce more expensive correspondent banking relationships, things that we haven't seen now, so we can't be complacent. Yeah, absolutely, because like you alluded to, right, it means tighter regulation and that uh, the global reality, whether in South Africa or abroad, because many, like you said earlier, saying finance regulations having been either softened or eliminated altogether in the US, for example, was a big part of the SVB collapse. But while stricter limitations will prevent risks, I mean, what impact do you see it having on the cost of finance, but also trading, Daniel, with other, uh, you know, counter-global parties, because it's likely to mean, what, delayed transaction execution, right? Well, as I say, it depends on how quickly we we act. And, and the point that you made um, just now around possibly sort of tighter regulation uh, as possibly one of the consequences, I would say not necessarily, uh, Alicia, because a lot of it will be real about better implementation of what's already in place rather than needing to kind of load up on more, more regulation. But of course, where additional measures are required to strengthen our system, we shouldn't shy away, given the obvious benefits we would derive from not being viewed as a high risk destination, which requires enhanced due diligence and the kind of issues that you've just mentioned, and um, which is considered then to call for higher risk premium and, and when we are not seen as a preferred investment destinations. So the costs of that we can avoid by making sure that we put shoulder to the wheel, implement as quickly as we can show and confirm. We have already shown that through things like the intergovernmental committee that's been created, but the necessary political will and ability to act uh, to get ourselves um, out of this great listing situation as quickly as possible. And Daniel, this is imperative because it's in a rapidly rising interest rate environment that all of this is happening as central banks battle against inflation, right? What are you pricing in as far as uh, interest rate trajectory is concerned, which of course has been pointed at as being another trigger for uh, the current banking crisis? Well, I would not express myself in terms of pricing in from a point of view of telling who I think might increase by when, or who might have reached the top of their cycles and might be uh, ready to ease when, other than to say that while we have seen uh, at the peaks and are past those, the inflation uh, risks are still elevated. Um, the core inflation readings in most parts of the world are still uh, worrisome. Uh, I don't think any of the central banks, given the environment that we are in, can afford uh, to be on any preset course. They will have to evaluate the incoming data and the evolution of the um, uh, the risk landscape, and have that inform uh, what what needs to to go in, in into the policy. But I think one issue that one needs to watch carefully is the disconnect that we're seeing at the moment between what the markets are pricing in vis-a-vis commentary, research, elements of forward guidance that we're getting from the official sector, from, from the central bankers. So convergence of those views might then potentially lead to future volatility, but it's something to watch given the obvious disconnect that we see at the moment.
I ask you that question, Daniel, because some have been calling for the nationalization of the South African Reserve Bank and revising its inflation targeting mandate, saying that that would be one way of getting local growth going. Of course, challenges to the bank's independence aren't new. Uh, is there a reason for concern, considering some of the recent comments and murmurs that we've been seeing in the market? Look, Alicia, that, as you know, this is like an evergreen topic, right? But it's, I guess, not surprising that given the current situation of elevated inflation and policy measures that uh, central banks have been taking, you know, including ours, you know, the cost of living crises, uh, that in that kind of context, the role and responsibilities of central banks would come back into much sharper focus. And we obviously no exception uh, to that. As you know, the issue around the independence of the SAAB tends to be part of a discussion uh, that focuses on three issues, and, and sometimes they're confused. Uh, namely, the actual mandate of the SAAB, how that mandate is executed, which speaks to independence, and also the ownership structure of the SAAB. What has been the major sort of subject of discussion has been the appropriateness of the scope of the mandate and the ownership structure, not so much around independence, as far as I'm informed, so, you know, both government and ANC conference resolutions that we've seen recently reaffirmed the need to protect the independence of the SAP as it is enshrined in the institution. On the other two issues, briefly, while there is, of course, a historic anomaly around the shareholding structure of the SAP in that it still has private shareholders. Uh, contrary to what many believe, this shareholding structure does not in any way result in these shareholders having any influence or control over the, the key responsibilities of the bank as they relate to monetary policy, financial stability, you know, prudential supervision, oversight of the payment systems or, or whatever, the monopoly rights of issue when it comes to, to notes and coin. It is therefore wrong to think that the nationalization of the SAAP may, need, may lead to, um, to a change of mandate, um, as it were, or independence, because for both these two to be changed would require constitutional amendment and, um, or that this might allow for greater level of accountability than there currently exists. None of all that will ensue from, from that change and one then wonders that given all of this and against the background of the various other more pressing challenges that we've been discussing uh, that we have as a country and the potential cost that could be involved, uh, one has to question the wisdom of affording the issue of sort of ownership at this stage some priority. As far as the mandate is concerned, um, the constitution states quite clearly that the primary object of the SAP is to protect the value of the currency in the interest of balanced and sustainable growth in the Republic, very clearly spelled out. And there are often suggestions that this mandate does not cater for employment creation. And, and of course, while price stability is placed at the core uh, of it, because it is vital for economic growth, the mandate indicates very clearly uh, that price stability is not an end in itself, but it is being pursued in the interest of balanced and sustainable uh, growth and by implication, uh, employment creation. The, the SAAP cannot target growth and employment directly, but can contribute to creating an environment that is that is conducive. And lastly, 
um, when it comes to independence, and you can see I'm still very passionate about these central bank issues, uh, and the independent is not meant to suggest that the Saab would have complete free reign. It, it is merely to afford the institution the privilege to act with professional objectivity free from political influence. So the constitution, for instance, talks about the need for regular uh, consultation as such. So there's no issue about sort of the Saab being a state in a state. So the way to look at it is really that the Saab is independent within the overall system of economic governance, but not independent of it. Yeah, got you. Let's home in, Daniel, on South Africa's growth outlook at, what, 0.1% for 2023, that according to the IMF, at least, any recovery is not going to be swift. It's not going to be strong. Are you worried? I mean, you have to be when we're flirting with, uh, you know, a full year recession potentially and bank earnings highly correlated to that of GDP. No, Alicia, absolutely. You, you're absolutely right. The fortunes of the banking sector are inextricably intertwined with uh, uh, those of the uh, domestic uh, growth outlook. And um, uh, we certainly have to all worry uh, based on uh, the kind of um, uh, growth numbers we've been, we've been registering. And um, we seem to be trapped in a low growth trajectory. Uh, and that must be worrying uh, for all of us. Uh, and in order to address the systemic challenges that sort of bedevil South Africa of unemployment and poverty and inequality, we require much higher levels of growth. You recall that the, um, the National Development Plan actually suggested that we should be targeting a sustainable annual growth rate of around 5%, uh, underpinned by a gross capital, fixed capital formation uh, ratio of around uh, 25%. So if you look at the most recent outcomes, it's a far cry from that. You know, the annual GDP growth rate for 2022 uh, was just 2%, uh, which included, as you know, a contraction of 1.3% in the final quarter of the year. And of course, this 2% growth is only sort of just marginal, a mere 0.3%, percent higher than the, the pre-COVID levels and the outlook is similarly bleak with the most recent forecast that suggesting that we may struggle to register any growth this year. The SARP is at 0.2 and the most recent one from the IMF even worse at 0.1 and even the outer projections are indicating that you know reaching GDP growth of, of even one percent might be a stretch and that needs to be viewed against a population growth rate of around you know, 1.6% or so, which means that on a per capita basis, we're actually going backwards. So we're in a deep crisis. And clearly the energy supply crisis, these severe rail and port infrastructure bottlenecks and crime and corruption are, are taking a heavy toll. Like you say, a big part of the problem is the country's energy crisis. And in my introduction, I didn't mention the role you played just last year as head of the presidential climate finance task team. Where do you see that taking us? Well, as you uh, have just indicated, so the work that uh, I was involved with <clears throat> last year was around sort of getting off the ground the so-called Just Energy Transition Partnership, which was part of the agreement that was entered into between the governments of South Africa, France, Germany, um, 
the UK, the US and the European Union, as part of which these governments committed to mobilize uh, up to eight and a half billion dollars over three to five years to help South Africa's transition to a um, less carbon uh, intensive economy and, and to transition it to a, a more sustainable um, sources of energy, essentially with the bulk of it having to go towards the um, decarbonization of the electricity uh, system. So we had committed, and my role was obviously to get the JP off the ground and ensure that by the time we get to COP27, which was in Sharm el-Sheikh in November last year, we were able to show significant progress with regards to implementing uh, the, um, uh, the, the political declaration from Glasgow. Uh, and indeed, we managed to um, submit an investment plan, the Just Energy Transition Investment Plan, which interestingly was structured in such a way that it did not only address the eight and a half billion mm -hmm. that was uh, the subject of uh, the agreement in Glasgow, but on a much broader scale to say that what is it, what is South Africa's scale of need for the first five years to kickstart uh, this multi-decade uh, transition to a low carbon economy and a more climate and resilient society investing in those three priority sectors that were identified being, as I said, the decarbonization of the electricity sector, uh, new energy vehicles, and, and green hydrogen, but making sure, quite importantly, that as we transition, we've got to make sure that those communities and employees that would be most affected from the transition, as you know, our energy production is highly dependent on fossil fuels and coal in mm. particular, and also very highly concentrated to one province being in Pumalanga. So we need to make sure that as we transition, the risks, the benefits, the challenges uh, are appropriately shared um, and, and that those that will be most affected from the transition are properly uh, taken care of. So at this stage, uh, the plan is undergoing um, some consultation. Yeah. It was launched in November, and uh, at the same time, the government is in the process of putting together an implementation structure uh, to take that forward. And um, we have seen what was quite encouraging, um, that there is a high level of interest in the plan. Uh, our initial discussions with the private sector showed, for instance, that sort of up to 500 billion rands of the 1.5 trillion uh, could come from the from the private sector, but the one thing what needs to state is that at this time the plan is still underfunded to the tune of about seven hundred billion. So more funds would need to be raised to finance the transition. Yeah, you know it's interesting you mention all of that in the latter part of your answer because I was going to ask you just how much of that thinking, Daniel, you're taking over to NetBank when it comes to corporate and investment um, and project financing, right? Because like you say, it's such a fine line starting to move away from the funding of coal operations where we're looking at a sector that in many instances, entire communities are built around. I know that, you know, banks credit extension exposure to those communities was spotlighted as one of the major risks that banks uh, some more than others would need to mitigate again. So it's a pretty hefty transition that needs to be managed here from a banking sector perspective as well. Well, I think NetBank has got a very long uh, a tradition of um, paying a lot of attention to sustainability, 
issues and it's not uh, for nothing that it's known as, as the Green uh, Bank. Uh, it's one of the banks, for instance, that has a dedicated board committee uh, to look at these things and they have been involved in financing a whole host of transactions and the other day we were just updated in the media around uh, the project pipeline. Uh, to that extent, obviously as the chair, uh, the role is to support uh, the board and the executive in executing uh, the strategy. Um, so as the bank is already on that path and has had a leading position, has been a pioneer in, in green financing, it'll be a pleasure to um, tune into some of the issues that I worked on last year when I get to NetBank. So as far as the leadership style you're taking to NetBank is concerned, you've really identified strong synergies that, that you relate to, right? Indeed, yeah. Speaking now on that leadership basis on a broader but more national level, what kind of shift in leadership would you like to see when it comes to managing the country to get things um, back on track, economically speaking, to counter the economic situation we're currently in? Look, Alicia, we, we need to do all we can to revive economic growth, and that will require a collaborative approach between the public and private sectors. We need strong and decisive leadership uh, to ensure that we tackle these three most pressing issues that I, I mentioned earlier. And, and we quite frankly need a higher sense of urgency in tackling these issues and, and much stronger uh, implementation frameworks and stronger accountability uh, uh, frameworks. Otherwise, we are indeed, as many have said, running a risk uh, of, uh, of becoming a failed state because we're already on borrowed time. So, um, uh, but I don't think it's too late to fix what we need to fix, but it just needs uh, us recommitting ourselves and redoubling our efforts to make sure that whatever it is that we need to do, whatever it takes to get growth going again, injecting uh, positive uh, sentiment uh, into businesses, into households that can invest and spend and in the process uh, help us tackle what of course is the biggest challenge of all, being, being unemployment. I mean, the employment levels at this stage are still below uh, pre-COVID levels. And as you know, we, we we are sporting a, a record unemployment rate. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Daniel, it's been a pleasure catching up with you today. So thanks so much for having joined us and uh, uh, for having been with us. Uh, to our audience, remember this webinar will be available via podcast. The social media campaign is hashtag ThinkBigPSG. The series is free, it's shareable, it's open to anyone interested, whether you're a PSG client or not. So keep the conversation going. Until next time, it's goodbye from me.